1: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: Welcome in, BMAS and Beamer. Uh, You'll hear from Joe a little bit later on this afternoon. He's in for Bowerly again today, so just me, Brian Mazarowski here with you for the next hour, but with a very special guest, former Buffalo Police Captain Jeff Rinalda, now with Vista Security joining me live in studio to talk about a number of issues especially around what happened here just over a week ago. Thanks for being with us.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
2: Um, Starting with the basics you know it's still tough to really talk about what went on but for somebody in your field something that you had have had to think about for a long time now And, and I'm I would have to think that through. Whether it's yourself, any one of your former colleagues, any one of your current colleagues, that call that comes in—that there's a, a mass shooting event or a shooting at an area with a lot of people—that has to be your biggest fear as a police officer. I, uh, what, what did you think about ever having to take that call?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, it, it's beyond a horrific event and for the last you know two decades departments have started to train for those types of responses and you know Columbine was kind of the precipitator it, it was a horrific event it was really the first time the entire nation saw something that horrific and police departments said we have to respond and we have to start training and I think for a long time most agencies around the country said, well we hope it never happens maybe. And then I think that as the years went on, and especially in the last 10 years, five years, as more and more of these mass shootings have occurred, departments stop saying if and more of when. So the training centers on the response, right? You cannot get there and wait for your SWAT team to show up. The officers have to be trained to show up and respond and just stop the threat so it's something that's in the back of your mind but the average police officer you know day in and day out comes to work they answer a number of calls everything from a barking dog to a homicide and it's a flood of emotions all day long right up and down up and down but when you respond and you're seeing firsthand that this is it um, the the amount of professionalism that needs to be shown is unbelievable and that's what Every officer that responded to that scene, regardless of the badge they wore or the agency they worked for. That's what they did. Their training kicked in. They knew they had a job to do that day, and they did it. What can you tell us about that training? You mentioned
2: Columbine, and I think the one thing that, you know, kind of most people know about that and how things changed is that response that, you know, it was treated almost, you know, a perimeter. We'll set up from the outside, you know, all these things that now. You know not to do it's the immediate response that's needed to help save lives but what else goes into that training you know as as much as you can tell us when an officer arrives at the scene or uh whoever it is gets that call what happens next
1: Well, there's a few things. So as you said, the the training used to be show up, set up a perimeter, wait for the SWAT team or your special weapons teams to show up and let them go in and stop the threat because they have more training, they have better equipment, better weaponry, and tragedies played out longer. These horrific events, the amount of time that a, a bad guy was able to perpetrate a crime was increasing because of the slower response. So then the training changed to say okay we got to have enough equipment in the hands of frontline officers that when they get there they can go in and address that threat and stop it. And then the training involved to say it's one thing to talk about this in a classroom, it's another thing to walk through a building and give out ideas and training, we need to get this more reality-based. And that's one of the big pushes you've seen in law enforcement in the last number of years is what they call reality-based training. It's one thing to sit in a classroom and talk about what you would do. It's another thing to be in a reality situation and see how you're going to respond. How is your breathing going to be? How is your mental acuity going to be? How are your marksman skills going to be? So a lot of the training developed into – Uh, simunition based training where we would have people respond to say a school shooting and we would have actors in the schools and people that would lay in hallways and scream and be injured and then the officers would go in with simunition and they would have to go in and find and eliminate the threat. And it taught us a lot. We looked at our response to that, we looked at what worked, we looked at what we can improve upon, and then we looked at what is the equipment that we need for these officers to effectively be able to do that job. So that's where a lot of this stuff has gone in the last five years with police departments, is trying to get the most reality-based training possible so that officers can get exposure to what it would be like to respond to one of these horrific events. So now
2: you're looking at this from a slightly different perspective, going from a police officer's perspective to in the security sector, which is, I mean, even more immediate, on site, you know, a lot of times. What does that training look like there? Uh, what does a security guard at a place where, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, I maybe even uh, two weeks ago security guards at some places are just there to be a friendly face um uh, somewhat more of peace of mind than anything you, you know some places obviously are, have more heavy security than others but a lot of times it it's just a guy a, a neighbor what does the training for a situation look like this from your perspective now in that security field Sure. So,
1: you know, I can speak for my company. We employ a lot of off-duty law enforcement officers, right? So we're able to capitalize on the professional training that they've received and bring that into our clients' locations. But when you talk about the average security guard, as you mentioned, it's an unarmed officer. It's somebody that's received... um, 24 hours of state-mandated training plus whatever additional training they need for that site. Their their focus, their purpose is to observe and report. It's to be a set of eyes and ears. It's to keep an eye on the surroundings, an eye on the environment, and to report suspicious behavior or possible criminal activity. And it's difficult, right? I mean, we, we did have some staff that expressed concerns after this happened. But the training itself is designed so that if people are doing the right thing. If people are seeing something suspicious and reporting it, and if security is doing their job properly, it allows for the ability to prevent some of these things from happening. You, you had a situation that unfolded last Saturday that unfortunately this person was dead set on carrying out this type of horrific crime. It appears as if security may have approached them the day before and thrown them out of the store. But it's there's no one magic answer to stop these things. So day in and day out, security officers do an amazing job in this country of just being that front line of defense, seeing something, reporting it, intervening, de-escalating, and that's what security is about in terms of stores and other locations that you will see, as you said, the average security
2: guard. That, everything you just said, seems to apply in this case too, right? We've heard a lot in the last week about Aaron Salter, his heroism, likely saving lives, a uh, former Buffalo police officer, been working security at that location. But he couldn't stop somebody who was heavily armored, um, as you mentioned, dead set on carrying out This horrific attack from that security standpoint i mean what more can be done should we be talking about more heavily armed security more heavily armored security is this just something that you know maybe could have played out slightly differently you know just had this person not had one piece of armor in one place i How do you react
1: to this? Well, I I think you make a very good point. It all comes down to chance to a certain extent. You know, had Aaron's round hit him in the thigh or in the leg or in the face, this would be a totally different conversation we're having today. Unfortunately, his round, it appears, struck him in his vest, and, and it did not have the intended effect. So it, it's a delicate balance. I, I think after tragedies like these occur, there's there's a spike in requests. I know a lot of our clients have requested additional security. Now they want armed security. And I think what you have to do is you have to look at these things in terms of the probability of them happening. Um, although the number of these instances are going up around the country, I believe year to date there's been 198 mass shootings in the United States of America, you can, only protect to a certain level before you begin interfering with the operation of the business. So, if you look at what we do at the Bills Stadium or at Key Bank Center, we set up virtual perimeters. We utilize the Erie County Sheriff's Office to provide that frontline protection so that if, God forbid, somebody was to show up with evil intent, there's the ability, the equipment, the training necessary to stop that. We then have a second layer, which is the unarmed security officers conducting screening. We're looking for weapons and other things to ensure that somebody cannot bring the tools of that into the stadium so we can protect people. It's very similar with what school districts are doing now. I know Niagara Falls uh, School District has invested in weapon screening technology. They want to do the best they can to ensure that a mass casualty weapon does not get brought into the school. So it's all a balance. But at the end of the day, we live in a society where we accept that there needs to be law enforcement. We accept that there needs to be security. We accept that we're going to experience some level of inconvenience. If you want to get on an airplane, for instance, you're, you're going through a lot of screening to get on the airplane. If you want to go see a concert or a sporting event, you're going to go through some level of inconvenience. The balance is always that versus the ability for the business to conduct its trade.
2: Maybe this is more of a philosophical question, um, but I'm wondering how often you think about it because you mentioned uh, the arena, the stadium, and I can remember the first time going into the arena after they introduced, uh, you know, more heavily armed sheriff's deputies outside, the dogs, um, and, and you know, officers and uh, sheriff's deputies who looked like they were in the military. You, you know, you felt like you were in. A militarized zone, and you see that for the first time, and it's very jarring. Now, probably not so much, right? Uh, You're used to it a little bit. But that balance of, you know, some people would feel very comforted by that. Other people, uh, they look at that and say, wow, should I be worried about something? You know, why is this necessary here? It's nothing I ever thought of before. That's a balance that has to be struck, too, because uh, every time you go into a grocery store, I'm sure people don't want to be reminded of what happened to that extent by seeing that presence. Some people, maybe the exact opposite.
1: Uh, absolutely, I mean, it's, it's a cultural shift. I, I can say that we have one educational client that uh, some members of the leadership wanted an armed presence at the campus. Uh, a lot of parents, a lot of the other faculty were absolutely against it. We don't have a need, there's never been an incident. The school forged forward with it. And to this day, we're still servicing that account 15 years later. And the parents and the faculty want that presence. Um, Security can become part of your institution. It can become part of the community where you are. And, And with this particular school, that's true. Our security officers attend football games and dances and engage in things even when they're not working because they're part of that community. So I think that the cultural shift away from why is the guy with the rifle standing at Key Bank Center, now the question is I'm glad to see them there. Because I think people are understanding that there's a certain trade-off that needs to be in place so that you can have these mass gatherings and conduct them safely. Um, The same can probably
2: be said from the stories we're hearing about Aaron Salter. Um, Did you know him? Yes,
1: I did. What do you remember him as from the police department? Um, I think the word consummate gentleman. Uh, He was just a friendly individual. He was someone that loved his community, loved his job, loved being a police officer.
2: Seems like somebody, like uh, what I think a lot of your mission was in the last decade in Buffalo Police, kind of forged that relationship between police and the community that's vital to what you do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's no doubt the, the better the relationship between law enforcement and the communities for which they serve, the better the outcome is, right? It helps to reduce crime. It helps to get the community involved. There's absolutely no way for the police to be effective if the community does not support their mission. There will always be people in the community that dislike law enforcement. They've had a bad interaction with an officer on a traffic stop, or they've heard some bad story, or they've seen things on national media or local media that uh, an officer has acted inappropriately. But at the end of the day, The community has to respect the job law enforcement has, and they have to respect the fact that without their involvement, without their cooperation, law enforcement really can't do a lot to stop crime, to investigate crime, and to prosecute crime, and and to bring people to justice.
2: And that happens in so many uh, little interactions every day, right, I mean, the things you don't think about. Um, I was waiting in line the other day at a restaurant it's with my wife, my son. It's about two years old, and he did uh, the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. He just grabs my wife by the face, looks her right in the face, you know, an inch away, and just coughs right in her face. And uh, there was a police officer right behind us, from where we were up uh, by Niagara Falls, and you know, he looked at it and he laughed. I'm sure she wanted to, him to put the cuffs on my son <laughs> for it, but you, you know, but it sounds strange. Something as simple as that, you know, just having someone next to you, laughing, you know, realizing the moment. He's not seen as someone who's not human, right? He's uh, he's, uh, hanging out in the same spot, reacting to the same things you are, and, you know, able to have a conversation. That's so important, even if it's a 30-second interaction with somebody you might never see again. Right.
1: Well, I think that's just it, right? So when you put on a uniform— You stand out when you put on body armor, you stand even further out when you have to have weapons and rifles, you become a a figment of something that represents danger or that some people feel is not the same as them. Take all that away. Every police officer is a human being. They're moms and dads and brothers and sisters and children. And they're the same as everyone else. They have good days. They have bad days at work they want to serve their communities. I, I think that in the hiring processes in this state now, especially in the city, I think in the examination, I think in the review of candidates, every agency wants to hire that human being, the person that's gonna have empathy, the person that's going to want to truly serve their community, the person that's not looking at this as a nine to five job, but as a, as a career, as a way of life. And in my experiences, that is, beyond 99% of the people I worked with in in my profession, what they wanted to do. So I think if people recognize that, if they can see beyond the uniform and beyond the weapons and and beyond the ugly side of policing, they'll understand that these are their neighbors. They're their, their counterparts that are trying to keep their community safe. We are live in studio throughout the rest of
2: this morning. Well, at least the rest of this hour. We won't keep you the whole morning uh, with Vista Security, former Buffalo Police Captain Jeff Rinaldo joining us live. Uh, Coming up, we'll talk a little bit more in depth. Uh, The background of this person, so much has been said about why this person wasn't on the radar, given some of the red flags in their past. What does the radar look like? How are red flags followed up on? Whose job is that? Uh, how easy or difficult can it be? All of these issues still to come. You're listening to B-Maz Beam and Beamer on WBEN. Welcome back. Brian Mazarowski here with you for the next uh, half hour or so up until about 10 o'clock. I'm joined live in studio. Vista Security, former Buffalo Police Captain Jeff Rinaldo, talking uh, about a whole host of issues surrounding what happened last Saturday here in Buffalo. Um, and obviously we've been kind of looking at the security aspect of this. I, a grocery store. what what runs through your mind when you hear grocery store? because we have uh, we've seen it unfortunately in this country before, but then uh, when you think mass shooting, it's probably not where, your mind goes. Um, you, you think of these bigger events or festivals or concerts or, or something like that. W- when you heard grocery
1: store, was that surprising? It, it, it was. I mean, it, it, as you said, you know, you, you hear mass shooting. I think most people's thoughts initially go to a school because there's just been a, an unbelievable number of school shootings in this country. And then you probably think of venues, what we saw in Las Vegas, the Route 91 uh, tragedy that occurred where a lone gunman was able to kill, I, I believe 58 people lost their lives, hundreds were injured. So, yeah, when you hear grocery store, it's it's not the usual venue. Um, it's definitely, you know, it's a soft target, meaning it's very hard to secure. You know, there's we talk about a balance. What What can a business afford in terms of security? Uh, you know, I don't think that the average grocery store can afford to have six armed uh, security officers on their property open to close, right? It's it's all about that balance. But I think more and more businesses now are starting to look at, do they even have a security plan? What kind of training have they provided to their employees and their staff? And, and starting to evaluate, is there anything that we could do better? Is it in some ways like... Um You know, it's not a perfect
2: analogy, but you hear about all the time at home fire safety. Fire safety at home doesn't mean having a firefighter, you know, standing in your living room or something like that, ready to put anything out at a moment's notice, but it just involves having a plan. You know, what do you do? If you're in this room, where do you go? Where do you meet outside of the house? That's what everybody's encouraged to do. Could it be something as seemingly simple as that for a lot of businesses to just give it a little bit of thought, come up with a plan and communicate it?
1: Absolutely, I mean we we offer active shooter training we we've conducted that training for a multitude of clients uh, everything from schools to office buildings, uh, manufacturing and really it's the point of it's just to give some information to start a conversation that what if, right, what if a bad person showed up at my place of work with a weapon and was intent on harming people, what would we do? And and what we find is that most people really have never thought about it. We're seeing this training becoming required. I believe every school in the state of New York has to do lockdown drills at least four times a year. So right now, if the fire alarm went off in this building, you me everyone in here would know instinctively what to do It'd be muscle memory we would get up we would exit to the closest exit we get away from the building the intention with this training the intention with uh, active shooter training lockdown drills is that it just becomes second nature that you keep people calm they're there it's ingrained how to respond to these things and the quicker and the more calm response that people have the more lives are saved and the less um, ability for a bad person to carry out their act, um, you know that's great to have
2: the plan if it's somewhere you're you are often. Um, but if you're at a grocery store, if you are at a concert, you're at one of these events. You know, we have had a, a, a terrorism analyst on our station many times who has said to us uh, time and time again after something like this takes place he's always a restaurant he's always kind of scanning and looking for exit points and you know what is what to happen if something were to happen and I always listen to that and I'm my reaction is that's good for you and I'm not really going to do that I'm not going to live my life being paranoid as the years go on that seems less and less paranoid and more and more like the reality that you kind of live in. How do you do that if you're an average person? I mean, it can be as simple as just kind of knowing where an exit is, I guess.
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, my wife will tell you, you, any place I go, I never sit with my back to the door. That's a classic cop thing, right? I wanna see who's coming in, who's uh, walking into the same space that I'm in. But I think, again, if if, People are in businesses are open to that conversation if they're open to that type of training. It, it's not specific to their workplace. Uh, for instance, you know, there's a lot of examples we utilize in our training to talk about. Th- this isn't for you know one two three Main Street at your desk. This is for if you're at the grocery store, a movie theater, a concert. It's just getting people to start to have what a lot of people call situational awareness, right? where you do take note of where is an exit. If I'm in a movie theater, where is the closest exit? If you're out and about and you're at a public venue, where is the closest gate to get out of there if something happens? I would say that you definitely uh, do not wanna have to live in a state of paranoia. You don't wanna have to live in a state of being afraid to go out and live your life. But I think more and more people are starting to be open to the idea of exposing themselves to some of this training, to some of these skill sets, so that if, God forbid, this happens, they have at least a little bit of knowledge on how to take care of themselves. Because unfortunately, when these things happen, your safety is your responsibility. And you have to be able to react to it, and you have to be able to remain calm and do everything you can to get yourself out of that situation. And, you know, it's
2: where that fire analogy maybe comes in again. You're not walking around every day living in, you know, a state of paranoia because there might be a fire. But as you mentioned, in the back of your head, somewhere deep buried in there, an instinct will kick in if you hear that fire alarm
1: absolutely and and that's the goal with in the schools anyway with a lot of the lockdown training is that it's not panic you don't need 800 school age children in a building screaming and running around frantically if something bad happens you have to have an orderly response to that and the way that you do that is exposure to training and then Doing the training, having X amount of drills a year, and then even auditing that. How well did we do on our lockdown? Were the doors locked? Were the children quiet? Did the teachers do what they were supposed to do? And again, the more that you're exposed to it, it lowers your paranoia. It helps you to understand how to react. And the more prepared more people are, the better off everyone is.
2: Um, A lot's been said about the background of this shooter. This person wouldn't have been on the radar of Buffalo police, would he? Not at all. How does that happen? You know, if someone is flagged, so to speak, and we heard about a mental health evaluation being done because of a threat um, made against the school, what happens then? And when does it rise to the level where someone is, you know, quote unquote, on the radar?
1: Well, I I think that's the issue, right? So a lot of people assume that there's these law enforcement databases that everybody shares, that your name winds up on like a blacklist type thing. Like on a TV show. Right, and everybody's aware of the fact that you're possibly a dangerous society. And that's just not the case. Um, You have to look at the system and the process. So as a police officer – you have the legal authority that if you feel somebody's a danger to themselves or others, you can, without their permission, take them for a mental health examination. Um, it's a 941. That means that a doctor, somebody in the psychiatric ward of a hospital, has to do an interview and conduct an analysis and determine whether or not your beliefs are accurate and then they are responsible for coming up with a course of treatment, whether it's um, you need to stay here for a while, we need to get to the bottom of it, or we need to get a social worker engaged, a counselor, a therapist, medications, whatever that might be. The problem is that system is overwhelmed. There's not enough resources out there for that. And I hate to use the analogy of a revolving door, but it almost has become that we would 941 people in the city of Buffalo, and they would be back out within hours on the street with no change in the situation, no change in their condition. And it's—I'm not criticizing ECMC. I'm not criticizing that profession. It's overwhelmed, and the problem is—is is the result of that is not shared with police. Um, it's not a case where a hospital will call the police and say, "Hey." you know, Joe showed up here today and he's threatening other people and you need to put him on your radar. That That's not how it works. So I think that what Buffalo police did, the start of the behavioral health team was an amazing step forward, trying to get law enforcement and social workers and the mental health community together in the same space, trying to identify threats and to ensure that people are receiving the care that they need so that you can help reduce the interaction with law enforcement, and you can help give people what they need, the tools, the therapies, and the treatments to exist in society without being a danger to themselves or others.
2: Um, Another, in talking with some of those professionals who work in mental health, you know, our definition of mental illness is different from a very narrow clinical definition that would allow them to keep somebody in custody, overnight, um, admit somebody into the hospital against their will. I, maybe there's room for expansion there because it, it is, we point to mental illness at times because it's, I hate to say a knee-jerk reaction, but but it's the only explanation we have. You know, no one in their right mind could do something like this or, or like any of the other shootings that we've seen before. Yet that doesn't mean that they necessarily fall under this very strict umbrella of mentally ill, uh, which I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around.
1: Absolutely, I mean, you know, undoubtedly we've all uh, known somebody or been you know, an acquaintance of somebody and you've made the comment, oh, he's crazy. Well, like you said, what does that mean? And the problem you run into is it's a very delicate balance between free speech, where people can say things that other people will find absolutely disgusting Mm -hmm. and their legal right to do it. And in terms of mental health and mental hygiene, I think that you're seeing more and more public acceptance of the access to those resources for people. You're seeing it, especially in law enforcement, We, we definitely have had a very, have a very robust mental health program where counseling and peer-to-peer support groups are becoming much more common because you cannot do what law enforcement officers do without experiencing some amount of trauma, some amount of grief, some amount of just, I need to talk to somebody, I need to get this out. And the more that's accepted in law enforcement, and the more that's accepted in society as a whole, I think the better off this country will be. But it's, you know, when you see what happened last week, everyone wants to point and say, well, this, this guy was crazy, he was nuts. How did the mental health community not catch this? How did the police not catch it? And, and it's just, it's there's a lot of silos. What's uh, HIPAA protected cannot necessarily be shared with law enforcement. And what law enforcement has can't necessarily be shared with the mental health community. So I think that there's uh, gaps that need to be bridged between that cooperation In things like the embedding of social workers and counselors with law enforcement is definitely a great move in the right direction to start to address those concerns.
2: Um, you mentioned mental health within police. Has that shifted? Is there a resource available so much attention is you know put on a first responder? Somebody who would have responded to the attack that day who was right there Uh, But even beyond that somebody who had to go inside that building for evidence collection the next day You know after an immediate threat is over but still seeing that devastation that's left behind I I can't imagine having to show up to work the next day after that and continue about your day. What what do those resources look like? And are they being taken advantage of? I think people still have the, uh, you know, mindset that, oh, you know, sure, they talk about mental health being available for police officers, but you know most of these officers would be too scared to, say, raise their hand and say, yeah, I need to take advantage of that.
1: Well, I can tell you, you know, the first police academy I went to almost 25 years ago, there was zero, right? I mean, you didn't talk about it. It was part of the job. You had to be a tough guy. You had to just go to these horrific scenes, see terrible, terrible tragedies, and people dealt with them in kind of self-destructive ways, uh, whether it was alcohol or drugs or bad marriages, and just there was a lot of negative side effects of that. And in the last... 15 years, I would say, you've really seen a a focus and a push on exposing officers now at the very beginning in the academy stages to becoming aware of their own mental health and removing that stigma of, if I ask for help, if I feel like I need to talk to somebody, there, there is no stigma, right? You have to support law enforcement, you have to support first responders that need that help so that A, their behavior, their personal lives don't become self-destructive, and and B, you need to be good with who you are and you need to be in a good mental state to do these very high stress jobs.
2: Uh, Back to tracking that threat. In the last 10, 15, 20 years, how has that changed with the advent of the internet and social media? Because in some ways you might think, Well, this could be easier because now people are making these threats on social media for anybody to see. It's out in the open, uh, plain as day, right there. At the same time, I kind of think back to, okay, well, 10 years ago, that might have been a letter or a phone call, which is much more personal, and I think of how I would react. I am much more likely to alert somebody or be troubled by a phone call or a letter received than something I randomly might see scrolling on the internet that I might not even raise attention in anybody's mind. They could scroll right past it, not even read it, even though they saw it with their own
1: eyes. Uh, Is it easier now? Is it more difficult now? Uh, How would you characterize it? I think it's much more difficult now. The ability to be anonymous online is out there. There's definitely... Uh, software programs that can help hide your identity the ability for someone to go onto a social media platform and just spread hate and racism is easy unfortunately and I think the presumption is that there's some big brother out there watching all social media platforms I probably could only name 10 percent of the ones that are out there the, the heavy hitters right so that's just not the case And the more that law enforcement attempts to dive into social media, the more you have the argument on the other side of the fence of this is free speech, it's protected, you you can't do that. So it is very difficult. It all comes back to basics, though. As as I said, when, when New York State started their see something, say something campaign, that's what's important. You cannot presume that law enforcement is aware of every single thing that's said on social media or every single person in the community who could potentially be a threat to others. You have to report that behavior. When it's reported, that allows law enforcement to look into it, to look into the person's background and to make determinations as to what the next steps should be, whether it's engaging mental health counseling, whether it's engaging the judicial system, whatever needs to be done to attempt to stop a threat before it actually occurs.
2: You mentioned that, uh, you know, image, people have of, like, scouring social media for threats, whether that's uh, local police department, the FBI, um, whoever that might be. And, and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, suppose that job exists in the Buffalo police, you know, wherever it might be. I'm in that job. I sit down at my desk. Where would I even begin? You you know, you sit down in front of a computer. I, okay, have at it. go uh, monitor, you know, monitor what? What am I? It's all over the place.
1: It's wild to see. So, the people's eyes are your eyes, exactly. I mean, it's it, it's it's an impossible task. It really is, and I, I think that we have somewhat become a, a consequenceless society, right? Where we're trying to lower punishment, we're we're trying to stop um, what has been seen by some as being overly harsh reactions to things, and the problem with that is that it allows people to take more liberties in terms of what they say what they post and 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 what they they spill out if a community truly wants to be safe the responsibility for their safety rests with them with their law enforcement partners but really with the community so it is absolutely necessary. That when people are aware of individuals or a person that just has that hatred in their heart or is making comments or is posting things online, you see something, you have to say something so that it gives an opportunity for law enforcement to get engaged. And, and that's what we saw here with this individual, right? A threat was made, it was reported, it was acted on, mental health uh, was engaged, Unfortunately, it didn't stop this horrific event from occurring, but for every one of those engagements, how many other threats have been stopped? And that's how I think you have to look at it. It's people
2: looking for, we've said this, uh, I don't know, countless times in the past week, whether it's the federal government, uh, the state, uh, in the mental health, uh, people uh, a few hundred hours away, people are always looking for a top-down you know, approach uh, for somebody to solve it a law to be passed uh, something to happen but uh, as you just said it's it's your own eyes it's your neighbors it's your keeping tabs on things it's you know if you want your community to be better who are you going to look uh, to do that uh, if it's somebody else you might be waiting a while
1: you might be waiting a while and it's It's not, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. I mean, these are common themes, right? Society as a whole is, to a certain extent, come to the expectation that somebody else is going to take care of it. And that's just not the case, especially when you're dealing with um, individuals that are just prone to violence, individuals that just don't care about society, they don't care about their community, and they want to cause damage. You, You have to be part of that process to stop that.
2: Thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Um, Great to have you in here. Always great to have a conversation with you and an extensive interview. If you missed any of it, it'll be available on demand, WBEN.com, in the BMAS and Beamer podcast tab. Former Buffalo Police Captain Jeff Ronaldo now with Vista Security talking uh, about a whole host of issues related to this past Saturday.